Well, good morning. Great to see you all. Thank you for being here today. Some of you are probably wondering, what is the worship pastor doing here instead of up there? Well, let me explain the story behind why I'm here this morning. A few weeks ago, several weeks ago now, I had preached or had taught a passage from Ephesians 4 to our music and worship ministry. And in one of our transition team meetings, uh, I had mentioned that, and Nate Herbst heard me say that. And this was before I even knew Nate Herbst was going to be preaching on Ephesians. And so when he found out that he was going to have to be out of the country, by the way, hasn't Nate been doing an awesome job filling the pulpit? Nate, we know you're out of the country. We love you, brother. We appreciate you. He just texted me last night, by the way, and said that over 400, they've trained over 400 pastors, and they've seen in their evangelism efforts over 150 people get saved already. So praise God for that. So when Nate found out he was going to be out of the country, he was impressed to ask me to fill the pulpit for him. And so that's why we're kind of taking things out of order. He's already technically completed Ephesians, but since I had taught on Ephesians 4, that's why we're coming back to it now. And it really is a great bookend uh, for this series. But uh, that explains why I'm here. I do believe that this is providential. I do believe the the Lord was already ahead of us. Like I said, neither Nate nor I knew we were uh, in Ephesians. That's just where God had led us. So I think, I believe that the Lord does have a message for us today. And I just appreciate the opportunity to be up here. It's an honor. It really is for me to be up here. Uh, I haven't preached in a while, so have a little grace with me. Don't throw any tomatoes, okay? Now, has anybody ever given you a gift that was so extraordinary, that was so over-the-top amazing, that it left you just shocked and amazed? That happened to my family and I recently, a few months ago now. We had driven up into the parking lot out here and uh, started to get out of our van, and there was a a dear, gracious couple observing us from a distance, unbeknownst to us, and they said, we saw you guys spilling out of your van. If you kind of think of a jack-in-the-box, you know, pop, you know. And uh, so when they saw us, the Lord impressed them, that's what they told us, that we needed more space. And can you believe it? God impressed them to give us space this van. Isn't that awesome? 12 passengers with cargo space. And that is my family right there. It's my wife, my lovely wife, Ruth. And then you can't really see him very well, but Joshua, Samuel, Andrew, Daniel, and little Gracie there in the front of the back there. So, uh, man, can you imagine how this impacted us? We were just completely blown away. And I tell you, the, the van that we used to have it was, a, it was a good van, a Honda Odyssey, but it was a 2006, and it was starting to break down. The doors were on the side were broken, and the upholstery was torn, and there was all kinds of science experiments under the seats, you know, with little children. <laughs> Had scratches on it, and, and this new van, no scratches, no tears in the upholstery, clean, nice floor, and the best part, it smells great. So you can imagine the Hopkins family have some new ground rules for this new van. Number one, no eating or drinking in the car, ever. Number two, no leaving messes in the van. And rule number three, repeat rules number one and two. So the, the reason being, because we want to be good stewards of this amazing gift that was given to us. We want to take care of it. We want to enjoy this van for years to come. 
And that's kind of what this message is about today. It's about being good stewards of the amazing gift and gifts that the Lord has given us, even himself. And so that's what Ephesians talks about in chapters 1 through 3 is all these incredible blessings and gifts that he's given us. And just by way of a review real quick, just some of the things that he's given us. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's made us holy and blameless before him. He's adopted us as sons and daughters. He's redeemed us. He's forgiven us. He's lavished upon us all wisdom and insight. He's given us an inheritance. He has sealed us with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. And on and on, we've been forgiven. We've been born again. We've been loved. God has given us these amazing gifts. And now Paul, in Ephesians 4, is about to say to us, Hey, you guys have just hit the spiritual heavenly lottery. You have been made rich in Christ. Now, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with Jesus? How are you going to live your life in a way that you're a good steward of what has been entrusted to you? So let's begin in Ephesians 4. He starts right there. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And that's what the theme is today, is walking in a manner worthy of that which we've been given and that which we've been called. So then, how then shall we live? So Paul gives us two primary ways in this chapter that we can walk in a way worthy of our calling. And this is the main theme right here. Number one, by seeking to preserve unity within the body. And number two, by putting on the new self. So let me say that again. The main theme of this message today is walk in a manner worthy of our calling by one, preserving unity within the body, and two, by putting on the new self. Well, you might say, well, I thought that a walk here had to do with our relationship with God. Well, it does. But that's chapters one through three. That's the vertical relationship. Now Paul shifts in Ephesians four to the horizontal. So now our walk has to do with our relationship with each other, especially in the church. And God says here, I want you to be unified. What is the definition of unity? Just a brief one here. It's the quality of being united in one. It has with it the idea that there are no divisions, there's no separations, there's no oppositions against each other. And it carries with it the idea that we are bound by one common purpose. You know, I tell our, our music and worship team all the time, we are not just a family. We are a family with a calling. We are bound together by a common purpose, and that is to glorify the Lord. So why is unity so important to God? Well, number one, it's a picture of what Christ came to do for us, isn't it? When he unified us back into a right relationship with the Lord and with each other. Ephesians 2.14 says, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So that's the number one reason why unity is so important. The other reason is, is that unity is what sets us apart from this broken and divided world. We live in a, a more broken and divided world than ever. And Jesus says in John 17, 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world 
may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. And you think about the church at Ephesus. This church, it was a very uh, mixed group of people coming together from all kinds of different cultural and ethnic backgrounds. And this beautiful picture of, of all these people coming together from different backgrounds, especially Jews and Gentiles for the first time coming together and becoming one in Christ. And this was a picture that, Jesus, that God was giving us to say, hey, this is what I want to do for the whole world. I want to unite you in me. Now, unity, let me clarify, unity does not mean uniformity. It doesn't mean we all talk the same and dress the same and, and think the same. But it does mean that we are harmonious together. I love the, uh, the Brooklyn Tabernacle. You know, a few weeks ago, a group of us got to go up to New York and got to go to the Brooklyn Tab. And I just love the Brooklyn Tabernacle because it, I think it's a picture of what heaven is going to be. All different kinds of people coming together from, from different backgrounds, different races, colors, creeds, different socioeconomic backgrounds. You have everything from former crack addicts and former prostitutes to, to Wall Street traders and, and businessmen and women. And they're all coming together to worship the one Lord in Christ. And it's a beautiful picture of, I think, what heaven's going to be like. Our choir and orchestra, I think, is another picture of this kind of unity. We have all different kinds of parts represented in our group. All different kinds of sounds, all different kinds of voices. But they're all making harmony in the same key. And that's a picture of what the unity in our body should look like. Jesus says again in John 13, By this the world will know you are my disciples. By your love for one another. Jesus is saying, hey, it's not our buildings. It's not our programs. It's not our money. It's not even our good works that people will know that we are his disciples. But it's by our love and our unity one for another. Unity in the church is important to God. Now, God is the author of unity, right? But we are called to preserve the unity. Now, I know in some translations it says maintain, and the one I'm reading from says maintain, and that's true, but in the NASB it says preserve, and so that's the, the word I'm going to use this morning. He says, be eager to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You know, division in the church is nothing new. It's been around since the inception of the church. Very early on in Acts, you see the Hellenists rising up and complaining about their widows being neglected. And that was a point of division temporarily until they got it resolved. Even Paul and Peter had a public spat. There was a moment of division there until they resolved that. Eodia and Syntyche, Paul says to them, I plead with you, dear sisters, agree with one another in Jesus Christ. And then perhaps one of the most well-known passages of, of division was in 1 Corinthians. When Paul says, hey, some of you are saying that you follow Paul. Some of you are saying you follow Apollos, and others say Cephas, and some of you Christ. And I'm hearing reports of, of quarrels and fighting in your church. And Paul's saying there, he's saying, are you not being merely human when you elevate one man over another at the expense of another? These men are just servants of God. They are, they are there to plant. Some are there to water. But God gives the growth. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't have a favorite Bible preacher or Bible teacher. Ruth and I happen to love Chuck Swindoll. But it does mean that we don't elevate one man over another at the risk of division within the church. 
We are to be one in Christ. This is the famous passage here where he says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What does that tell you? It tells you there are no sides. There, there is not to be any sides in the body of Christ. You know, from time to time, I've, I've heard people say, well, so-and-so, they're on my side. Or so-and-so, oh, they're on the other side. But this Bible right here, this scripture tells us there are to be no sides in the body of Christ. We are to be one. If there's any side that we should be concerned about being on, it's God's side, right? But uh, there's a call to be one. Now, I, some of you might say, well, you know, it just doesn't feel like we're one, David. I understand. Sometimes I don't feel like what Ephesians 1 tells me I am. I don't feel very holy and blameless sometimes. But that's why, that's what God has declared me to be. And that's what God has declared us to be as a body. We are to be unified. So I, I mentioned that recently we, a group of us, went to New York City and we got to, uh, to go up there and sing at Carnegie Hall. But I tell you, one of the most eventful times was when we had to get on the subway train to go to the Brooklyn Tabernacle. And I'm already hearing chuckles out there because there's several of our people here that were there at the time. And there's a picture right there of the famous New York subway. Now, how many of you have ridden a New York subway? It is quite an experience, and you know what I'm talking about. And so we had, we had made a plan. We had a plan of action. We had Robert Malseed. He was our secret weapon. You know, he organized everything and knew what, what tracks to get on and went. And so we met down in the hotel lobby, and we were going to get down there in time. To, to, we are going to get to Brooklyn in time to when the doors open and get the best seats in the house and everything. So we, we, we had about 20 of us in our group, and we went down to the subway, and we were ready to catch that subway train. But the only problem was that first subway train was late, about 20 minutes late. And the subway system in New York is a lot like our airports, you know, and, and the, the airlines. Sometimes you have a connection, connecting flight that you've got to get there in time for. So we made the first subway train, no problem. But it was the second subway train that we were late for. So by the time we got out of that first, exit out of that first subway train, we had to book it to the other side of the tracks. Now, it wasn't just a simple jaunt across the, the, the platform there. We had to go up some steps, like the ones that were up there just a minute ago. And we had to walk down a ways and then go down another series, step, series of steps across the two tracks to get to our connecting subway train. But because of the, the, the stress of the situation, all of a sudden, our group became divided. One of us went one way and the other of us went the other way. And my wife was with one group and I was with the other group. And we could hear the subway train coming and we didn't want to miss it. And I was afraid if we got split up that one of our groups, you know, it's so complicated that one of us would end up in Queens or something, you know, or, or not make it to the Brooklyn Tab in time. So we're, we're racing to get there. And I had Mary Provencio and Al Provencio in my group. Mary and Al, are you here this morning? I don't see them here this morning. Okay. Well, Mary and Al were going just a tad slow. And, and I was concerned that we weren't going to make it. And so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of rushing down the way there. And I see them kind of coming along slowly. So I go back and I grab Miss Mary's hand to pull her along. I say, come on, Miss Mary. And so she, in turn, grabs Al's hand, and we're just trotting down the, the platform to try to get to the subway. And it was hilarious. And at one point, I, I had to let go because I, I, I wanted to make sure I got with my wife. And I turn around, and we're, they're coming down the steps. And, and I've never seen Mary and Rod fly so fast, you know, walk so fast. They're flying down those steps. 
and thank God we made it onto the subway train all together, and everybody's out of breath and everything, and I'm, I'm looking at Mary, and I'm like, Miss Mary, are you okay? And she's just like, <laughs> so I had to ask her a couple more times before she finally said, yes, yes. So there's a picture of us. We finally made it to the Brooklyn Tab. Can we put that up? There we are. And we had an amazing time. There was a wonderful time of worship. But that is a picture, if you will, of what it means to be eager to maintain unity, to be eager to preserve the unity. Sometimes we, ha- sometimes we get split up, and we have to make efforts. Some of us have to slow down. Some of us have to speed up. Sometimes we have to go back, and we have to grab somebody's hand, and that person has to grab somebody's hand to get us all back together again. We have to be intentional and passionate about preserving the unity within the body of Christ. So how, now we get into the how. How are we to preserve unity within the body? Well, the passage here tells us two ways. One, by the use of spiritual gifts. And two, through the leadership roles within the church. So right there in Ephesians 4, he begins, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, let's just stop right there for a second. What this passage is saying is that that God has given each and every one of us a gift. Not just all the gifts from Ephesians 1, but he's given us a supernatural spiritual gift. And Paul goes on in the next little passage there to talk about how Christ is like a warrior returning from victory and bringing all the spoils back from that victory to share with his people. And the spoils of his victory are the supernatural spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit that he wants to distribute and disperse among his entire body. Each one of you, if you've been born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, then you have a supernatural spiritual gift for the building up of the body of Christ. There's no such thing as disposable Christians in the body of Christ. Each one of you has a crucial role. He then goes on to say, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now, I'm not going to go into descriptions of these. I don't have time to do that this morning. But these are some of the leadership roles within the church. And he says, for what purpose? To equip the saints. That is our job. That's the pastor's job, the elder's job, the teacher's job. Our job is to equip you for what purpose? You have a role too, the body of Christ. And that is to serve to minister. Now, we all serve, we all minister, but it is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. We are all involved in one big construction project here, and the leadership is like the construction managers, but you have a role too. What is the goal of this? He goes on to say, until we all attain to the what? Unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we see here that unity and health and stability and maturity, these are all the goals of why we all need to be all hands on deck. And then Paul finally goes on to give a picture of the human body as a metaphor of the body of Christ. Now you think about a human body, if Christ is the head of the body, then he's the brains behind the operation, right? But the brain will be frustrated in the sense that its plans will not be able to be realized, its intentions will not be able to be realized if the body is fragmented and divided. 
if the hand is over here and the foot's over here and the eye's up there, they all have to come together. And not only that, they all have to be engaged in serving. Then Christ can work in and through us to preserve the unity and to build us up for maturity. Okay, so that's the first half of the chapter. Now we go on to the second half. But I want you to notice, not only are we called to work, to walk worthy by preserving unity, we're also called to walk worthy by putting off the old self and putting on the new self. Now Paul gives us a definition of what the old self is. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So that's a description of the old self. Now the old self is nothing more than the old nature. It's who we were before we came to Christ. The old nature is me-centered. It is selfish. It seeks to put my interests above the interests of others. And it's in direct contradiction to our new nature. And we'll get to that in just a second. But Paul says if we're to walk worthy of our calling, then we need to put that old nature off. And the Greek word he uses here for put off is apatithamai. And it's a picture of taking off one's clothes and laying them aside. It has this idea of of stopping a certain state or a condition and laying it aside. But we don't just stop there. We're to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Verse 24. When we come to Christ, it's like we get a new wardrobe. We get some new duds. We get a new style. Have you ever gone to a clothing store and you purchase a new clothing item and you put it on right away? I do that all the time. I like to put it on in the store and walk out in the store. And how does that leave you feeling? It leaves you feeling just new and fresh and crisp, right? It's a good feeling. And that's what it means to take on the new nature of Christ whenever we become born again. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. So we're given a new nature that instead of being focused on ourselves and is selfish and me-centered, now we have the nature of Christ is focused on others and the welfare of others. Praise the Lord. And I think it's also important here to note that Paul's, I think, was very intentional about using this metaphor of taking off our clothes. And, he, and how often, think about it, how often do you change your clothes or should you? change your clothes. (laughs) Every day. Now, my boys don't always do that, (laughs) but but we should. We should be changing our clothes every day, and that's what Paul is saying. This is not a one-time event. This is a daily practice of putting off that old man and putting on the new man. Recently, uh, we had the privilege of being invited to some friends of ours' cabin up in the Hamas. We'd never been to the Hamas before, And this was Harlan and Cheryl Peck. Harlan and Cheryl, there they are right over there. Hey, guys. And they were our gracious hosts. We had such a great time. We spent a night and a day with them, and Cheryl cooked for us. And Harlan there, Harlan had an ATV. 
Y'all know what ATV is, an all-terrain vehicle? There it is right there. Kind of spread out for some reason. But uh, anyway, man, that thing was awesome. Had five seats in it. So he wanted to take me and the boys uh, back roading. And so we got in there, and, and Andrew, and we didn't have enough room for Andrew, so he had to stay behind. <coughs> but the rest of us went and went off in, back into the woods and off-roading, and there was all kinds of bumpiness. and everything. The boys just loved it. But you all know, in New Mexico, we have this red stuff called dirt, right? And so, unbeknownst to us, as we were going through having a great time, we were being covered in a layer of, of thick red dirt. So much so that by the time we got back to the, the cabin, this is what we look like. I know you may not be able to see it. Yeah, it's kind of dark. But the boys... They're, they're, they look like squirrels because they had helmets on, you know, and there's there just dirt everywhere. And I got back, and I, I got out of that thing, and I saw it on me, and I went like this, and just, poof, just a big puff of, of dirt came off. And boys just love to get dirty, dirty, right? And you can tell Harlan there, he, he probably had the best time out of, out of, out of us all. But uh, anyway, a little side note here. You know, I told you Andrew didn't get to go. <clears throat> so when we got back, he said, what took you guys so long? And, and he said, why were you guys, why were you guys gone so long. And our little Daniel, who's four years old, he says, because we're men. <laughs> I don't know where he got that from, but he's got this little explorer's heart in him. So, but what do you think I did? Almost immediately, I, I went up to the cabin and I took a shower and just cleaned myself up. Now, I would have been a little crazy if I'd gotten out of that shower and all clean and fresh. And I, if I would have taken the dirty clothes covered in dirt that I had taken off, that I had laid aside and put those back on, I would have been a little crazy to do that. But that's exactly what we do as believers, as Christians, when we're going back to that old self, that old nature, and allowing ourselves to be covered back in that dirt. And Paul is saying, change your clothes. Change your clothes. Put off the old and put on the new. And you might say, David, I've tried that. Man, I've tried that and it doesn't work. I, I can't do it. Well, you're right. You can't do it. I can't do it. None of us can do it. And Paul gives us some clarity on that and some encouragement in the chapter immediately preceding chapter 4. He says in verse 20 of chapter 3, he says, Now to him, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, it is his power, it is his strength that sustains us and enables us to put off the old and put on the new. But, but we do have a part to play in the process. Walter Elwell, a commentator, points out that there's a three-step process or progression right here in the scripture that can take place in order for us to put off the old and put on the new. Let's look at verses 22 through 24. Verse 22, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. What does that sound like? Step number one, repentance. We need to repent. We need to have a change of mind, be willing to have a change of thinking as it relates to our sin and the Lord. And when we repent, it opens the door for the Holy Spirit to do step number two, which is in verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Now, this is so crucial right here, church. To be renewed is a present passive form of the verb, and this is really good news. 
the present passive form means that this is something that is in process. It has not been completed yet. What does that sound like? This is, this is sanctification, the process of sanctification. But it's also passive, which means the subject in this sentence is being acted upon by an outside external force. And the scripture is saying that we are the subject and the outside force acting upon us is the Lord, the Holy Spirit. He is the one that renews our minds. We can't do it ourselves, but we do have to position ourselves to allow that to happen. And that enables us to see as God sees and enables us to make the godly decisions. And then the last step in this passage right here is to put on the new self. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And that is nothing more than putting it into action. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is appropriating what the Lord has revealed to you and renewed your mind to do and to be. And again, you might say, well, that, again, David, that sounds amazing. That sounds wonderful. But it's not very practical. It, you know, I've tried to change, and I can't change. Well, remember, this is not about changing yourself. This is not a self-help, self-improvement, 90 days to a better you program. It isn't about that. This is a relationship with the Lord, whereby he changes you. Last week, Gracie, our little girl, Gracie, she's two years old. She got to go to the dentist for the first time. Now, I don't know if she would say it that way. She wouldn't say, I got to go. I had to go to the dentist for the first time. And her older brother, Joshua, and, and mommy, of course, was there with her. And all they were going to do was check out her teeth, you know, and, and clean them, you know, and the dentist was just going to look at them. Our little Gracie, she's, she's, she's precious. We love her to death. And she's very secure in mommy and daddy's love, but she's a little bit of a fraidy cap. And it didn't help that when... When they were there at the dentist, Gracie saw her older brother Joshua get a tooth pulled. That was not a good setup. So by the time she got into the chair, here comes the hygienists with all their tools and everything. And she just starts freaking out, going berserk. And she just shut that mouth up like a clamp and, and just flailing arms. And, and they had to kind of subdue her. And they, it just got to a point where she, they wouldn't even let her clean her teeth. And then the dentist came, and all he could do was just kind of eyeball it, and I think they ended up brushing it or something. They were able to brush her teeth a little bit. But she was fighting, fighting that doctor. And that's what we do, isn't it, with the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit, he's wanting to do a work in us. And it's like a doctor with, with a patient on the operating table. And sometimes they have to cut to bring healing. Sometimes they have to pull and extract something out of our heart to bring some healing. But what do we do? We fight we fight against the Lord, and sometimes we climb off that operating table, and we're impeding this process right here of sanctification. So if we're, if we're to walk worthy of our calling, we need to allow the Holy Spirit to do a work in our hearts and minds. We need to be able to receive that. So now, now church, we get into some heavy application of what we've just talked about. We've talked about to what it means to walk worthy by preserving unity. And now we've been called to put off the old and put on the new. And now Paul is about to give us a lot of application for how to do that. And that's one of the things I love about the Apostle Paul. He doesn't just talk about theology and doctrine. He always, in every one of his letters, gives lots of application about how to apply this in our daily lives. So that's what we're going to look at now. And 
This is called The Behaviors of the New Man. And I have to give credit to Pastor Stephen J. Cole for his wording of these, the, these applications, these titles. And what I'm going to call them is the, the put-offs and the put-ons. Okay? So let's dive right into that. The first one, the first application of putting off the old and putting on the new is that we need to put off falsehood and put on truth. Look at verse 25 there in Ephesians 4. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. We are to speak truth to one another in the body of Christ. There's no place for pretentiousness. There's no place for, for deception or lies in the body of Christ because Christ is the embodiment of truth. You know, we're really good at, at putting on masks sometimes, aren't we, in the world and even here at church, a place where we shouldn't have to do that. We're good at putting on fronts and, and we're great actors. But why? May I suggest to you that it's probably because of fear. We're afraid of of being real, of being transparent. We're afraid of what people will think of us. We're afraid of rejection. We're afraid that if we see something that's concerning to us, we're afraid to approach our brother or sister and, and tell them about that. We're afraid to express our opinion if, if we don't agree with something. That's a form of, of falsehood. And what it is is, fundamentally, it's a concern about protecting ourself. Again, the old nature is concerned about self Whereas the new nature is concerned about speaking the truth in love to one another. Perfect love casts out all fear. We need to be completely honest, but that doesn't mean no holds barred, right? It doesn't mean we can go up to, a, to our brother or sister and just unload on them, right? And just read in the right act, just get everything off of our chest. Again, we need to check our motive. What's the motive behind that? Is it really for us or is it for building up our brother or sister? What happens if we keep falsehoods in the body of Christ rather than truth. Well, a picture of this is a disease called leprosy. And here's a picture of what it looks like. Leprosy. We all know leprosy is, is, is a disease whereby the nerve endings in the extremities die. And when that happens, they're not able to, to send signals back to the brain when there's pain. So as a consequence, oftentimes... Those who have leprosy will burn their hands or they'll, they'll have an appendage cut off and they won't even know what happened because there's not truthful communication between the extremity and the head. And so that's the effects of keeping falsehoods in the church when we should be having truthful communication to preserve health in the body. So there have been times in my life, church, even here in the last four and a half years or so. When I'll be honest with you, I, I have not confronted some people as I should have in love. I didn't confront them at all because I was more concerned about protecting myself than I was loving my brother or sister. And I want to say that I'm sorry to those brothers and sisters. I'm sorry to you, my church family. And I want to ask for forgiveness from the Lord for not walking in a manner worthy of his calling in that area. But you know, I've been through kind of a sort of a personal revival here in the last few months. And I've come to realize that, that speaking the truth in love to my brother or sister is just as 
important and healthy for me as it is for my brother and sister. And I'm endeavoring to, to do that moving forward from here on out for the sake of my soul, for the sake of my brother and sister's soul, and for the sake of the unity and, and health of this body. And I hope that you will join me in that endeavor. Number two, the number two application that he gives is the new man puts away indifference and puts on proper indignation. Verse 26 and 27, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, at first glance, this looks like Paul is talking about just dealing with anger. And there is a truth to that. We don't need to give full vent to our anger. We, we don't need to let the sun go down on our anger. But I think there's a more subtle meaning in this passage. And I think it implies that there's something worse than anger. And that's indifference. We can become apathetic and indifferent and dismissive toward our brothers and sisters. Have you ever seen somebody caught up in sin, but you didn't confront them, not because you were afraid of rejection, but because you just didn't care? You didn't want to take the time, the energy, the resources to help that brother or sister. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a loved one caught up in addiction. Maybe it's a friend who, man, just keeps making bad decisions, and, and they just have to keep learning lessons the hard way. And we just get to a point where we just throw our hands up in the air and say, oh, forget it. I don't... I don't care anymore. Well, that's not the new nature. That's not the nature of Christ. Paul's admonishing us to let love others enough to have proper indignation over sin and to do something about it. Love them enough to, to say something and do something. Okay, moving on for time's sake. Number three, put off selfishness and put on a heart of giving. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, again, at first sight, this looks like we're being called as Christians to be hard workers. And that's true. Yes, we should be responsible and, and engaged and be uh, hard workers. But Paul's saying that we shouldn't just be looking out for ourselves in terms of providing for ourselves. We should be thinking about how we can pr help provide needs for others, especially in the body of Christ. The new man seeks to serve others first, to put others' needs above its own. My best example of this is my, my dear bride, my lovely wife, Ruth. Uh, she is such an inspiration to me in this area with our family and uh, with our, my ministry. Uh, the, the, the beautiful picture of selfless, sacrificial giving. And you see this probably more, most often at home when we have mealtimes. Can you imagine five boys and a hungry daddy uh, sitting down for dinner? Y'all know the game Hungry, Hungry Hippos? You know, where they come out and they're just constantly trying to get the, it's like, you know, Lord of the Flies, you know, we're just all trying to go at it. And Ruth is, she's always the last one to sit down. She's always making sure everybody else has their food, always the last one to sit down, always the last one to eat. Sometimes she doesn't even eat because of our schedule. She eats way later. And so that's a picture of what it means to consider others over yourself, to be selfless and to have a heart of giving. So thank you, honey, for your example in that way. Number four is verse 29. Put off destructive speech and put on constructive speech. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. 
And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And let me just give some examples of destructive speech. Name-calling, sarcasm, ridicule, mockery, gossip, slander, complaining, lying, profanity, filthy talk, and dirty jokes. This is the kind of speech that is meant to wound. It's meant to tear down rather than to heal and build up. And he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Those characteristics are completely opposite of the fruits of the Spirit, aren't they? And he's saying, whenever you're putting on that old man and acting out that way, it's grieving the Holy Spirit in the way you're relating to others. The Holy Spirit wants us to seek other people's welfare, not to tear them down. He's saying, replace with constructive speech. And this isn't gratuitous, embellishing kind of flattery. This is speaking truth and love to the point of building that person up. I stumbled across an acronym that I think will help us in this, and you teachers out there are probably familiar with this. This is the Think Before You Speak acronym. Let's put it up. There you go. Think before you speak. And each of the letters has, has a, uh, a word in there that will help remind you of what constructive speech looks like. T is for true. H is for helpful. Is it helpful? I is it inspiring. N is it necessary. And K is it kind. Now let me also give just a, a quick side point here. There is a place for constructive criticism in the body of Christ. We need that. That's part of speaking the truth in love. But when you're doing that, a good rule of thumb is, if you're criticizing somebody in a constructive way, if there's a burden that you have in your heart about it, then you're probably on the right track. But if you get a sense of enjoyment out of doing it, then you probably should hold your tongue, okay? Words have the power to either hurt or heal. In my office, both in my office and at home, I have stacks of cards and letters Words of affirmation that I will go back to time and time again when I'm low. And I'll pull those out and read those. And they are so edifying and such a blessing to me. Church, you need to know when you write those cards, they have a huge impact on, on people. And I keep every single one of them. I want you to know that. I want to challenge you to take some time this week. Think of somebody that you can build them up with your words. And the last point. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. We need to put off unrighteous anger and put on kindness and forgiveness. Now, again, I don't really want to do this, but I think it's important that we walk through what some of those first characteristics are. Bitterness. What is bitterness? Bitterness comes from unresolved anger or hurt feelings. It's something that keeps festering and, and it takes a root of bitterness in your heart. And a, and a good measure of that is if you're holding a grudge against somebody, that means that you might have a root of bitterness. Wrath. Wrath is outbursts of anger. It's, it's losing one's temper. Anger itself is, is more of a long-term kind of disposition. It's, it's when that that wrath kind of settles down into your bones and you just have an overall attitude of anger. Clamor. Clamor is loud, fighting words. It's screaming and it's shouting and it's yelling and it's even crying that can be used to manipulate or intimidate others. Slander. Abusive words, falsely spoken, that damage a person's reputation and malice encapsulates all of the above. It's ill will towards someone, which is the opposite of love. And Paul says, put those things off, church, 
and put on kindness and forgiveness. Forgive one another as God and Christ forgave you. You know, maybe there's been a time here in the past, maybe in the past few months, that you've been hurt. Maybe somebody has, uh, you know, they've, they've put on that old man and they've, they've hurt you. And if, you know what? If you stay around here long enough, you're bound to do the same to somebody else. It's just part of being human. But maybe you have been hurt. Maybe, maybe somebody has lied to you or about you. Maybe somebody's rejected you or belittled you, disrespected you, ignored you, or spoken hurtful words about you or against you. I want you to know from my heart, I'm very sorry that happened to you. I'm very sorry. And then maybe there's some of you here that maybe that didn't happen to you directly, but you're, you're mad and upset and angry about somebody else who was sinned against. And maybe you're taking up an offense for that person. And Jesus is saying, he's calling us to put off the old man and to put on the new man and forgive as he's forgiven you. And how did he forgive us? Unconditionally, freely, sacrificially. What did Jesus say on the cross after he had been mocked and spat upon and, and beaten and, and whipped and crucified? Did he say, get him, God? No. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We have to forgive, not because, not because anybody deserves it. We don't deserve it, do we? But he extends it to us nonetheless. And this means, church, we forgive somebody even when they don't admit they're wrong. Even, even when they don't confess it and take ownership of it and apologize for it. We have to extend that forgiveness. Out of all the spiritual blessings we've received in Christ, I can think of none greater than his grace, his forgiveness. And Jesus is asking us today, will you walk in a manner worthy of what I've done for you, of your calling, and extend, extend the same grace and forgiveness that I've extended to you. I want to close with some lyrics from a song that my wife found just a few days ago. She was listening to the Isaacs, a southern gospel group. And it's a song called Why Can't We? And it says, there have been, there have been times I've been hurt, been so hurt, by someone else. I didn't want to give a second chance. I let all the bitterness take control and took grace into my own hands. But even Jesus said, whoever's done no wrong, let him throw the first stone. And the chorus goes on to say, if he can love someone in spite of what they've done, no matter where they've been, if he can let it go and set the debtor free, if he can keep forgiving you and me, why can't we? Why can't we? Would you bow your heads and pray with me? I know that the time is, has left us here, but I want to ask you some questions for you to ponder in your heart. And I think this is important, church family, so I want to ask for your patience as we, as we go through this. And I'm going to ask Mara to come. Thank you, Maria. 
I'm going to ask you some questions, and I just want you to ponder these in your heart between you and the Lord. And if you need to come to the, to the front here and speak with a, a pastor or an elder or a counselor, if you need to just come up and pray, or if you just need to stay right where you're at and work through this between you and the Lord, then I want you to have freedom to do so. But let me ask you some questions. Is there someone who has hurt you that you haven't been truthful with about your feelings because you are afraid of what they may think? Will you put on the new nature and speak the truth in love to that someone? Maybe there's someone you've observed who's caught up in sin and maybe addiction or whatever, and and instead of confronting them in love, you've grown calloused apathetic, indifferent. Will you put on the new self and risk that rejection for the sake of building up your brother or sister? Is there someone to whom you've been selfish, seeking to take something from them for your own benefit? Will you put on the new self and seek to give instead of take? And is there someone to whom you have used hurtful, destructive speech, either to them directly or behind their back? Will you put on the new man created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness and make a choice to say only what is good for building that person up as fits the occasion? Finally, is there someone you have anger towards? Maybe a root of bitterness has taken hold in your heart. Will you put on the new nature and make the choice to forgive this person as God in Christ has forgiven you? Oh, dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this time today with my church family. I pray that you've spoken to us through your word. Lord, what a challenge it is to walk worthy of your calling. Certainly, it's not something that we can do in and of our own strength. But to him who is able We look to him. Ask that you give us the grace and the strength to walk in this way by preserving unity within this body, by being eager to maintain unity and by making a choice to put off the old man, to put on the new man, to change our clothes and to walk in the new nature. Lord, I just... I want to thank you so much for all that you've given us in Christ, all the spiritual blessings that we have in him. And I do pray that we would be good stewards and value what you've given to us by the way we walk. May we be dependent upon you and give you all the glory. And it's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. Thank you. God bless.